Chapter 6 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 2, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 6 of The Wager Between the Conde de Gondomar and the Marquis of Buckingham. At a banquet given at Whitehall, attended by all the principal lords and ladies of the court, a wager was laid between the Conde de Gondomar and the Marquis of Buckingham, the decision of which was referred to the king. The circumstance occurred in this way. The discourse happened to turn upon jousting, and the magnificent favorite, who was held unrivaled in all martial exercises and chivalrous sports, and who, confident in his own skill, vauntingly declared that he had never met his match in the tilt-yard, whereupon the Spanish ambassador, willing to lower his pride, immediately rejoined, that he could, upon the instant, produce a better man-at-arms than he, and so certain was he of being able to make good his words, that he was willing to stake a thousand doubloons to a hundred on the issue of a trial. To this Buckingham haughtily replied, that he at once accepted the ambassador's challenge, but in regard to the terms of the wager, they must be somewhat modified, as he would not accept them as proposed, but he was willing to hazard on the result of the encounter all the gems with which, at the moment, his habiliments were covered, against the single diamond clasp worn by de Gondomar, and if the offer suited his excellency, he had nothing to do but appoint the day, and bring forward the man. De Gondomar replied that nothing could please him better than the Marquis's modification of the wager, and the proposal was quite consistent with the acknowledged magnificence of his lordship's notions. Yet he begged to make one further alteration, which was, that in the event of the knight he should nominate being adjudged by his majesty to be the best jouster, the rich prize might be delivered to him. Buckingham assented, and the terms of the wager being now fully settled, it only remained to fix the day for the trial, and this was referred to the king, who appointed the following Thursday, thus allowing, as the banquet took place on a Friday, nearly a week for preparation. James also good-naturedly complied with the ambassador's request, and agreed to act as judge on the occasion, and he laughingly remarked to Buckingham, "'Ye are demented, Steenie, to risk ah those precious stains with which ye are bedecked on the skill with which ye can yield a frail lance. We may say unto you now in the words of the poet, "'Pendeba tertigemata monilia colo.' But what shall say Frey, whose round throat those gemmed collars and glittering oshes will hang a week hence, if ye be worsted? Think of that, my dear dog.' "'Your Majesty need be under no apprehension,' replied Buckingham. "'I shall win and wear His Excellency's diamond clasp. "'And now, perhaps, the Count will make us acquainted "'with the name and title of my puissant adversary, "'on whose address he so much relies. "'Our relative chances of success will then be more apparent. "'If, however, any motives for secrecy exist, "'I will not press the inquiry, "'but leave the disclosure to a more convenient season.' "'Nunc est narande tempus,' rejoined the King. No time like the present. We are anxious to ken what the hero may be. I will not keep your majesty a moment in suspense, said de Gondomar. The young knight whom I design to select as the Marquis's opponent, and whom I am sure will feel grateful for having such means of honorable distinction afforded him, is present at the banquet. Here, exclaimed James, looking round. To whom do you refer, Count? It cannot be Sir Gilbert Gerard, or Sir Henry Rich, for— without saying aught in disparagement of their prowess, neither of them is a match for Buckingham. Ah, save us! We hae it! You mean Sir Jocelyn Monchensey! And as the ambassador acknowledged that his majesty was right, all eyes were turned towards the young knight, 
who, though as much surprised as anyone else, could not help feeling greatly elated. "'A wheel, Count,' said James, evidently pleased. "'You might have made a war choice. That we are free to confess. But we begin to tremble for your broad jewels, Steenie.' "'They are safer than I expected,' replied Buckingham disdainfully. But though he thus laughed it off, it was evident he was displeased, and he muttered to his confidential friend, Lord Mordaunt, "'I see through it all. This is a concerted scheme to bring this aspiring galliard forward, but he shall receive a lesson for his presumption he shall not easily forget, while at the same time those who make use of him for their own purposes shall be taught the risk they incur in daring to oppose me. The present opportunity shall not be neglected.' Having formed this resolution, Buckingham, to all appearance, entirely recovered his gaiety, and pressed the king to give importance to the trial by allowing it to take place in the royal tilt-yard at Whitehall, and to extend the number of jousters to fourteen, seven on one side and seven on the other. The request was readily granted by the monarch, who appeared to take a stronger interest in the match than Buckingham altogether liked, and confirmed him in his determination of ridding himself forever of the obstacle in his path presented by Monchensey. The number of jousters being agreed upon, it was next decided that the party with whom Buckingham was to range should be headed by the Duke of Lennox, while Monchensey's party was to be under the command of Prince Charles, and though the disposition was too flattering to his adversary to be altogether agreeable to the haughty favorite, he could not raise any reasonable objection to it, and was therefore obliged to submit with the best grace he could. The two parties were then distributed in the following order by the king. On the side of the Duke of Lennox, besides Buckingham himself, were the Earls of Arundel and Pembroke, and the Lords Clifford and Mordaunt. And while the King was hesitating as to the seventh, Sir Giles Mompesson was suggested by the Marquis, and James, willing to oblige his favorite, adopted the proposition. On the side of Prince Charles were ranked the Marquis of Hamilton, the Earls of Montgomery, Rutland, and Dorset, Lord Walden, and, of course, Sir Jocelyn Monchensey. These preliminaries being fully adjusted, other topics were started, and the carouse, which had been in some degree interrupted, was renewed and continued with the entertainments that succeeded it till past midnight. Not a little elated by the high compliment paid to his prowess by the Spanish ambassador, and burning to break a lance with Buckingham, Sir Jocelyn resolved to distinguish himself for the trial. Good luck, of late, had invariably attended him. Within the last few weeks he had been appointed one of the gentlemen of His Majesty's bedchamber, and this was looked upon as the stepping-stone to some more exalted post. Supported by the influence of de Gondomar, and upheld by his own personal merits, which by this time, in spite of all hostility towards him, had begun to be appreciated, with the king himself most favorably inclined towards him, and Prince Charles amicably disposed, with many of the courtiers proffering him service who were anxious to throw off their forced allegiance to the overweening favorite and substitute another in his stead. With all these advantages, it is not to be wondered at that in a short space of time he should have established a firm footing on that smooth and treacherous surface, the pavement of a palace, and have already become an object of envy and jealousy to many, and of admiration to a few. Possessing the faculty of adapting himself to circumstances, Sir Jocelyn conducted himself with rare discretion, and while avoiding giving offence, never suffered a liberty to be taken with himself, and having on the onset established a character for courage, he was little afterwards molested. It was creditable to him that in a court where morality was at so low an ebb as that of James I, he should have remained uncorrupted, and that not all the allurements of the numerous beauties by whom he was surrounded 
and who exerted their blandishments to ensnare him, could tempt him for a moment's disloyalty to the object of his affections. It was creditable that at the frequent orgies he was compelled to attend, where sobriety was derided, and revelry pushed to its furthest limits, he was never on any occasion carried beyond the bounds of discretion. It was still more creditable to him that in such venal and corrupt days he maintained his integrity perfectly unsullied. Thus severely tested, the true worth of his character was proved, and he came from the ordeal without a blemish. The many excellent qualities that distinguished the newly made knight and gentleman of the bedchamber, combined with his remarkable personal advantages and conciliatory manner, considerably improved by the polish he had recently acquired, drew, as we have intimated, the attention of the second personage in the kingdom towards him. Struck by his manner and by the sentiments he expressed, Prince Charles took frequent opportunities of conversing with him, and might have conceived a regard for him but for the jealous interference of Buckingham, who, unable to brook a rival either with the king or prince, secretly endeavoured to set both against him. Such, however, was Sir Jocelyn's consistency of character, such his solidity of judgment and firmness, and such the respect he inspired, that he seemed likely to triumph over all the insidious snares planned for him. Things were in this state when the trial of skill in jousting was proposed by de Gondomar. The wily ambassador might have, and probably had, some secret motive in making the proposal, but whatever it was, it was unknown to his protege. End of chapter 6